Because let's not forget, like, max aerobic speed isn't just aerobic contribution. There's an anaerobic component to that. So if you're thinking that's taking care of all of the aerobic stuff and you're not looking at critical speed, you're probably leaving stuff on the table from an aerobic conditioning point of view. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is a part two, following on from part one with Gareth Sanford last week. So if you haven't checked that out in part one, it would make sense for you to do that before diving into this. It will just give you the background necessary before we dive into defining an athlete's mechanical and neuromuscular ceiling by profiling, individualization in team sport environment, and how the anaerobic speed reserve is different from critical speed, and why you may want to use anaerobic speed reserve versus maximum aerobic speed testing and prescription. So a really interesting two-parter that culminates, obviously, in this episode but I was super excited to get Gareth on and it definitely, definitely didn't disappoint. So conditioning in team sports, conditioning in track and field, this one and the previous episode are definitely for you. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics Force Plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. I measure you have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor blue trident which includes ultra high g capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to part two of this two-part episode with Gareth Sanford. Have you seen that been done particularly well on the World Tour? That Maybe that microdosing approach in a warm-up scenario when it's built up over time? Have you seen that been done successfully anywhere? Uh, from a team sport perspective, I probably haven't seen enough of it to, okay. to comment. 
Um, in the middle distance running space, that's the game with the 800, <laughs> right? Particularly if you've got people transitioning up from 400. But this is this is where I'm back to the, the point of, as practitioners, understanding the first principles all the way along from maximal sprinting speed, which is not limited by energy supply, it's limited by ground ground reaction forces and mechanics, all the way down to that energy system model is really important because then you can step into these scenarios and go, okay, here's a group of athletes that are all across the map. They all have different needs. They have different limiting factors. And then you can start getting into, okay, well, what does this position demand? What's a ticket to the dance for this position, given the coach wants to play in this way? <clears throat> and that's what's required. And, oh, we've got to do that three times a week. Because one of the things that's difficult with games coming so thick and fast is, yep, it, it, it's hard. I understand it's hard to um, implement such a concentrated stimulus all the time. But I think if you start with a subgroup, subgrouping, you can very quickly go, okay, here's what is going to be bang for buck as a stimulus for these type of guys throughout the season. And okay, if we have to drop something in those, say, let's say the endurance-based group, um, one of the things we can't really afford to drop is that aerobic stimulus because that's their bread and butter. Now, on the speed-based guys, I'm not saying don't drop, don't do any aerobic stimulus. They need that, but just the how is going to be different, right? It's going to be a more interval-based approach. But I think it helps you make those decisions really quick, like once you get comfortable with that that kind of framework. For someone that's starting out, looking it through this lens, when it comes to subgroups, yeah. where would where would you start? Just just two groups. So, it's um, the groupings are ready to um, you know present a continuum. So the extremes okay. are very very fast twitch to just a slow <laughs> slow twitch jogger, right? And then you're going to have those varying um, ticket to the dance demands, right? So for a fullback in the English Premier League, typically needs to be able to meet this kind of criteria, right? And that's going to shape what kind of speed and ballpark you think that should be for a maximal aerobic speed and a maximal sprinting speed. And you're going to have that for each position. And <clears throat> then you're going to have people who fit in the middle of that, right? And we should probably spend a bit of time just on that group in the middle who maybe a bit more of a hybrid right where you go well they're quite good at this and they're quite good at this and the thing about those athletes is they're very special and they have the ultimate flexibility of being effective whether the game is slow or fast whether the race is slow or fast it gives them a toolbox of options who would be a typical person as an example of that hybrid Oh, yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I imagine, you know, when you look at, say, someone like a, a Raheem Sterling, who's been in the game a long time now, you know, probably started in the speed-based bracket, but over time has accumulated a lot of training age, a lot of training volume, and now is probably, you know, probably somewhere sat in the middle. Um but what we have to think about as well as the conditioning side of things is, well, all it takes for 
someone to not be in that space is detraining of those qualities. And that's where, again, like having these conversations where you're looking at the whole profile across the board and going, oh, someone's dropping here. You know, so aerobically, where is the max aerobic speed? Where's the critical speed pace? You know, where 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 is that for that athlete? If that's detraining too much, well, maybe they're sliding back across. You know, so you're constantly looking at those stimulus as you move through the season um, for those those subgroups. One thing I want to make sure I get in is misinterpretations because mm. that was a, that was a and like I said I said this to you before I do an awesome job on Twitter of deciphering and distilling a lot of this information the anaerobic speed reserve as well as other things as well into threads and when I was going deep into your threads from one to another and um, into into multiples at the same time one thing that I came across I thought of was based on all this information that's been presented although incredibly well distilled there must be a lot of misinterpretations that you see out there either through the questions that you get and you're like you've kind of you've gone to the wrong track there or the world tour that you went on what is there any key misinterpretations or misunderstandings that you commonly come across when it comes to looking at this through the lens that we just spoke about yeah it's a great it's a great question and a big question so uh, (laughs) let's uh work through it so I think one of the big things, again, if we if we start from first principles, maximal sprinting speed, which is the top of the anaerobic speed reserve, is limited by ground reaction force and mechanics. It's not limited by energy supply. So some perspectives that I've heard from people are that anaerobic speed reserve represents anaerobic capacity, and it does not. The unfortunate thing for the world of sports science and physiology is anaerobic capacity is very, very hard to measure. High, high noise in all of the measure, almost all of the measurements that try to do it. And so it doesn't mean we shouldn't consider it as a stimulus and have it as part of our program. But I think trying to capture it at the moment um, is maybe a bit beyond what we have. And if we come back to the principles of wanting a test that's high signal, we can be very confident what the maximal sprinting speed is. We can be very confident, right? And that we've measured it accurately. And when we retest in eight weeks time, we can see if the work we've done has moved the needle on that or not. But some of the other tests that aim to measure anaerobic capacity or claim to measure anaerobic capacity, um, they're measuring something in that space that is important energetically. I just don't know what it is. And so when I come back to how do I make a decision off that, I'm not sure. And importantly to remember as well with anything that's trying to capture anaerobic capacity is, hey, is it improved because we've improved anaerobically or has it moved because we've detrained aerobically? And I would rather move forward with confidence in something that I know what it is and you know, by taking care of the aerobic side, I think often we can chase, I, I, I see this a lot in um, the middle distance space, people can chase intensity and those big speed endurance, anaerobic, hard anaerobic sessions, but it's like a hammer, right? You get a big reward from it, but it's a hammer. You can't keep going to the well with it. And often where people come unstuck is there's maybe sometimes an overemphasis and overvalue on that as a stimulus and an undervalue 
sometimes on the critical speed and the aerobic conditioning that underpin actually underpins the performance. Like if you take a team sport where say in in English football, you know, you're you're building up to maybe one to three minutes of high intensity work, right? Like there's lots of lots of that on a repeated basis. After you've done the first sprint, you're getting an ever increasing aerobic contribution to that effort. So even though it's fast, maybe fast mechanically, or there's a big acceleration demand, there's an aerobic piece underpinning that effort, and there's a certainly an aerobic piece underpinning that recovery. And so that from a conditioning kind of first principles, I think is really important. Anaerobic capacity is something that we chase. And if we think, oh, we're kind of, we're not as fit as we should be. We haven't done enough of those hard workouts. Well, sometimes that is the case, but often it's it's the aerobic side of things that aren't quite right. And by the way, that's different to training the maximal sprinting speed, which is in the program for me year round. You know, and that's talking about, you know, all out 30s, 50s, that kind of thing, where you might be monitoring acceleration as well. Um, And I think it's probably a good place to mention, like anaerobic speed reserve, as we talked about at the beginning, is one tool. You know, I wrote a paper with uh, Damien Harper and Joe Club and a few others on this concept of the locomotor profile, right, which includes the anaerobic speed reserve and then has acceleration and deceleration in it. You know, from the maximal aerobic speed, you can estimate that critical speed landmark. And you think with those variables there, you do 150 meter, you get your acceleration, you get your maximal sprinting speed, you do a six minute test to estimate your MAS. And from that, you can have a look at what critical speed might be, playing around with that in the field and seeing how people respond to those those sessions and then doing Damien's deceleration test. And for most people, most of the time, from a determinants of performance perspective, that's probably getting you 80 to 90% of the way there. And we're talking about a 50 meter sprint. I think Damien's is a a sprint into a decel. So that's maybe a 30 meter sprint and a six minute MAS test, right? And when you look at practitioners might be given 15 minutes That gets people a lot of the way there. You then add onto it, okay, what are the sport-specific nuances we need to understand? And those kind of things. Um, that's how I would think about that. So, so that, that's gone down a bit of a, a track there, but I think that's that's the take-home for people is like there's so much noise and information and new tech and you know this research thing, and it's like what's the question, what's important to performance? And if I'm looking at an athlete's conditioning – those five measures I've just walked through, five or six measures, that gets you a lot of the way there. And this I think me- when, when we move away from that is kind of when we can get lost. This is maybe a reframing of this, of the exact same question, but what would be some popular measures that you see that you would, that you think with time better served elsewhere? I'm probably just trying to pinpoint you on what you would mm. discard versus what you would include on that one? I would I would say one of the things I would see that's probably missing is the value on critical speed. 
from an aerobic conditioning sense and there's maybe an overemphasis on maximal aerobic speed. I think it's it's useful for testing because it's practical, um, but it is protocol dependent. So really be consistent with the protocol you use. As I mentioned a few times, I use a six minute effort. Um, there's some really good papers from the AFL that uh, kind of out, outline those steps. I think because that space beyond max aerobic speed, VO2 max is kind of this kind of unknown space. There are a lot of people chasing that. And there's something valuable there for sure. But if I come back to, I'm trying to make a decision. Uh, I don't know what it's showing you. Hmm? Does it mean don't explore it? Well, there's not places for innovation and that innovation is important. But like it can't be at the expense of the fundamentals. Because let's not forget, like max aerobic speed isn't just aerobic contribution. There's an anaerobic component to that. So if you're thinking that's taking care of all of the aerobic stuff and you're not looking at critical speed, you're probably leaving stuff on the table from an aerobic conditioning point of view. Okay. Let's let's stay at maximum aerobic speed. Mm. And we've gone through the pros and well, you've gone through the pros and cons of different um testing methods but why wouldn't people versus rather than go to anaerobic speed reserve and 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 looking at this this continuum why wouldn't people just stay and prescribe off mas yeah that's a great question so um remember we talked about the steep part of the curve and the um speed duration so between one and five minutes the anaerobic speed reserve can accurately estimate someone's uh, all-out performance of a one to five minute effort. So if I start in track and field and then we'll kind of move into into team sport, is, <clears throat> you know, if I was looking at all-out efforts over 400 meters, over 800 meter pace, over 1500 meter pace, that would all fall in that space above maximal aerobic speed, um, someone's performance in those efforts is largely tied to what proportion of the anaerobic speed reserve they're operating at. And the reason for that is there's a relationship between working at a higher proportion of your anaerobic speed reserve and uh, markers of fatigue. So things like higher lactates, higher RPEs. And so if we're just prescribing as a proportion of maximal aerobic speed, we're not taking into account those mechanical differences people have, which means that two athletes, athlete A and B, could be working at quite different proportions of their anaerobic speed reserve because you prescribed, say, 120% of MAS. So a better way to approach that would be to go, okay, I want a, a stimulus maybe that start, is in that ballpark, but actually instead I look at the speed range of this athlete and the speed range of this athlete and I look at prescribing it maybe 10 or 15% of the anaerobic speed reserve, which has a stimulus over time. There's some recent work out from Adelaide, um, Clint Bellinger's group, where they looked at comparing the MAS versus the 3015 and the anaerobic speed reserve for prescribing this, these efforts above MAS. And what they found was the variability across individuals within a group was much lower when you use the proportion of the anaerobic speed reserve because it's accounting for those differences. 
So what does that mean? As a coach or practitioner, if you're prescribing things and you're assuming that the athlete has got the stimulus you intended, you're going to, over time, be closer to achieving that using the anaerobic speed reserve rather than some of these other tests where maybe it was hitting the mark with this athlete, but this one over here, it was a way different stimulus. And then over time, that compounds and you all of a sudden you're three months down the road and go, well, we thought we were moving the needle with this guy, but actually um, that stimulus hasn't really hit the mark. And so I think what this framework of subgrouping and, you know, this this prescribing as a percentage of anaerobic sea reserve is a slightly different application, but using the same tool um, allows you to get more hits as a practitioner, right? Allows you to be confident that you're moving the needle in these different areas with more of your group. And, 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 and people often ask about, you know, how do we uh, normalize these for differences between individuals? And this is a perfect way to do it you know, above, above MAS. What I would say, when you look at that prescription above MAS, you're starting to get into this hard anaerobic territory, right? And when you put a subgroup lens in front of that and you say, okay, so the endurance type athlete, your Jordan Henderson's of this world, um, are primarily slow twitch. They don't have a lot of glycolytic fibers to handle a high volume of hard anaerobic work. Their, their muscle machinery just isn't made for that type of stuff. So in my opinion, that type of athlete, if we if we come back to track and field, I'll, I'll give this example. You know, classic session coaches would do in the summer is, you know, three by 400 meters all out, right? Really hard anaerobic speed endurance effort. Now, when I look at that through a subgroup lens, that type of session for me isn't going to work for a Jordan Henderson type character. Um, they don't have the mechanical capabilities to the same extent as the speed guys, so it's not going to be that fast. At a muscle level, they don't really have those same anaerobic enzyme potential to really process and really get a high lactate, which is what you're trying to do. So what I'd often do with those type of athletes is maybe flip that type of session and go, let's do five. So you're increasing the volume. You maybe do five or six times 400 and it'd be a slower speed, be a building a higher volume, maybe a more high percentage of aerobic than rather going after that hard anaerobic interval. And if you wanted an anaerobic sprinkling, you could pick up the pace of the last 50. But that's a very different intent from a hard 300, 3 by 400 all out of, say, 8 to 10 minutes rest. You know, the guys in the middle, that's probably a perfect session, plus or minus, for them. The speed-based athlete, they are so neuromuscular and produce so much force that if they do two really high-quality reps, I might call it. because they produce much higher quality of those kind of sessions, really high, and they can easily overcook themselves. So you can see how like the same session design of like a three by 400 all out of eight minutes can look very different when you put the subgroups through it. But if you start with a training model of 
here's the type of session that has to happen now and everyone goes through that you're going to get some who do well some who don't some who can get through it but they suffer for the next three or four days and then we sit there going oh i'm not sure what's wrong with so and so (laughs) right i think a lot of these things can be mitigated at the front end not everything you're always going to have exceptions and those things but i think this this approach really allows you to get more hits so we're just going to take a very quick break in this episode with gareth so this is part two coming up of the second part of this episode where we discuss maximal aerobic speed testing and prescription and why you may want to use the anaerobic speed reserve over that instead so pros and cons of different testing methods and also MAS versus tempo trading. So cool part two coming up with Gareth. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is the global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military and workplace health. Their annual Human Performance Summit has become a must-attend event for anyone interested in performance analytics and research. The North American Summit will take place on November 5th and 6th at the -the state-of-the-art UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas, Nevada, which I have actually been to and is an incredible facility. So with the attendance capped at 250 people, the summit provides a unique and intimate forum for live discussion and collaboration between human performance professionals across sport, military and public safety. So this year marks the first online tickets that are available, allowing attendees worldwide to experience the event virtually, which is an incredible offering from the guys at Fusion Sport. So to learn more and purchase tickets to Fusion's North American Human Performance Summit, please visit humanperformancesummit.com and use the code SPORTSMITH10 for a 10% discount. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website omegawave.com and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports is a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid, and reliable athlete assessment. For the first time ever, you can assess metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics, and speed and agility, all with a single wearable sensor. Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organizations, performance centers, teams, and athletes to make data-driven decisions. The technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at OutputSports where you can schedule a demo. So now back to the episode with Gareth. 
I'm going to come back to a question because I'm going to let you have a little time to, in the back of your mind, have a little think about it. Is there any questions that people come to you consistently that you'd almost like to use this as a as a chance to to kind of put the record straight to a certain extent? But before I ask you that, just let that mellow and and sink into your into your mind while we're going through this next one and come back to the tempo. So yeah. one tempo training. So one thing that we discussed on a recent uh, round table, there was uh, Milan Ivanovic, Martin uh, and Kier uh, talking about MAS versus tempo. And there was a bit of a back and forth, obviously Martin on the MAS side and, and, and Kier on the, on the tempo side. What's your, obviously <laughs> forgetting about the last hour and five minutes talking about the anaerobic speed reserve, but bringing this tempo, probably team sport tempo training into the mix versus the, what you talked about in the middle distance, long distance world of tempo training. Where does that, where does it, where does tempo training fit in this context with the last hour? Yeah, great question. What does tempo in team sports mean to you? What does it mean to me? Well, it, yeah, it, because in this in this context, because you talk to a lot of different people and it means a lot of different things. So I yeah. just want to clarify well, that yeah no yeah. it was interesting because on the example that you gave i can't remember what example you gave was it the 100 meters of a 16 or was it 200 meters of a 26 something like yeah. that yeah that i in, in my mind i'm thinking you're talking about tempo training there right okay so that, that that that's just my that's my interpretation yeah. but you're absolutely right tempo training to one is not tempo training to another but that was where my head was at when you gave that example before yeah so first of all on the mas uh versus um critical speed or tempo type stimulus i think uh if we're asking if it's one or other we're asking the wrong question <laughs> um it's um it's a combination of both you know max aerobic speed to me is important for a number of reasons number one it sets the ceiling of kind of pace at aerobic capacity and that's an important training stimulus because if you just focus on critical speed and pushing that as high as you can, there are certain proportions of that aerobic ceiling that you can reach and then you're limited by your aerobic ceiling. Right? So you always want to have an eye on, on where that is. Um, the critical speed piece, as, as I alluded to at the beginning, concurrently alongside that, I'm always looking at both of those. Now, recovery from a critical speed session once you have developed a certain level of adaptation, it's very easy to recover from. Because remember me talking about once you move beyond critical speed intensity, you start to get a step change in your physiology. Your ventilation starts to climb. Your blood lactate starts to climb. Your recruitment of higher motor units and fast twitch fibers starts to climb. So the minute you're doing in, um, training intensity above that critical speed landmark, there are implications of that for recovery the next day. Whereas if you are working in and around, but probably on the on the side of being under critical speed, in a aerobic type profile, you can recover that pretty pretty easily, you know. And you're not going to come in the next day feeling like, oh man, I'm I'm ruined and I can't complete what I need to today. So I think that becomes the critical differentiator for practitioners when they're deciding, do I want this stimulus or do I want this stimulus? Because I think if you're, if you're playing games all the time, three times a week, 
you're probably getting your max aerobic speed stimulus to a degree from the games. And from an aerobic fitness side of things, you're maybe going to take a leaf out of the heptathlon in Jess Ennis's book and do this micro stimulus of, you know, critical speed training. So that's how I think about that difference. Um, in terms of tempo training being the intervals that we described of maybe a 16 second 100 or whatever and doing repetitions of that, yeah, that can be a form of it. But I think that format for an endurance-based athlete is underdoing that athlete aerobically based on their physiological preference and where you're going to get bang for buck with that type of athlete. So that might be the right type of approach to do with a Bukayo Saka or your speed-based guy. But certainly, even the guys in the middle, the hybrids, I think you're leaving something on the table with them aerobically if that's the only way that you're conditioning them aerobically. <clears throat> and and it doesn't mean there can't be a a blend, right? Where you maybe have some continuous, some interval, you can play around with that. But if you think of it like a slider, right? So if you line up all your different stimulus, right? And you go, you know, here's my sprinting speed and here's my speed endurance and here's my maximal aerobic speed and here's my critical speed or tempo training, however you call it. <clears throat> and on top of that, you have your subgroups. You've got a slider with each of those stimulus across each of the subgroups and the light and shade is going to be slightly different based on who you're, who you're looking at. Nice and your context, your context is going to drive the application of that. Nice little visual as well that you've actually done, um, put pen to paper on. Where have, I, where have I seen that before, the slider? Oh, maybe on Twitter, yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's where all the knowledge yeah. comes from. Because, because, because a, a misconception that you're asking about that comes about a lot is oh, you know, I'm a speed-based guy. I just need to do the speed side of things. Well, like, the, if that's if your sport demand, if you're a 100-meter sprinter, then absolutely. Um, but it's not an either-or. And I think you've got to be able to da- do this dance along the continuum because athletes, you know, at the highest level need both of those ends. And even if you're an endurance-based athlete, improving the maximal sprinting speed which is different to hard anaerobic stuff. You know, this could be biomechanical things. This could be, you know, strength deficits. This could be force application deficits. Um, Can raise the anaerobic speed reserve for that athlete, which can improve their tolerance of high-intensity efforts within a game. Now, that doesn't mean that they're ever going to be that speed-based athlete, but they're not trying to be. They're just trying to remove the limiting factor maybe that they have on their profile by tapping into all the determinants that underpin maximal sprinting speed. So that's how I would think about that. Perfect. Just coming back, has it had time to mellow any of the um, any of the questions that you get that you could potentially... Um, I mean, some of them, again, some of them is what we've just discussed for the last hour and 15 minutes that I've, yeah. that I've pulled out from the, the questions that I've seen on Twitter and the questions that, that we've kind of uh, discussed between us. But is there anything that we haven't covered that could potentially help people out there when it comes to understanding 
understanding this and getting really getting to grips with it? Yeah, well, I think there's um, two things I'd say. There's that that tension of sport specific and versus training the physiological capacities or biomechanical capacities that underpin that sport performance. And again, with with a lot of these things in our uh, community, kind of you can they can be presented as these two polarized arguments, right? Like maximal aerobic speed or critical speed, hundred percent, right? or yeah. or sport specific or physiological determinants. Mm-hmm. And the 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 reality is, like, if it, it's not an either or, and yeah, you want to know where the bias of your program sits on that continuum. I think, but again, with the slider, you want to be able to move up and down with that. So I think the thing that's going to help people do that the most is invest in leading with first principles. So Richard Feynman, famous physicist, has a process called the Feynman technique of working through. So we've talked through some concepts here of critical speed and maximal aerobic speed and maximal sprinting speed. And, you know, the Feynman technique is to work through that technique from the ground and go, okay, well, so maximal sprinting speed, what does that mean, right? And what underpins maximal sprinting speed? And working through that chain and finding where your gaps are in that chain actually then means that when you go into this situation where you profile your squad and go, oh man, like we've got everyone all across the board here of this profiling continuum, what do we do with it? It means that you have all the tools in the box to then be able to tackle each of those individuals where they are. And that, I think, as practitioners, is how you can empower yourself to, to be a real asset in discussions around this complexity. You know, a few times a week, I'm on the training field with coaches, and we're having discussions in the middle of the field all the time in this topic of complexity. Right, so if I just run through some of the kind of decisions we're thinking about, right? So you're going, okay, when's the next game or next fixture, right? For this, when's the next race for this athlete? Okay, so what does that mean that we're doing today? How many of these are we going to do? Um, what are the implications of doing that tomorrow? Within the middle of the session, you're looking after two reps and going, oh, they don't quite look at the races today. Do we do another one of these? How much rest do we do? Do we adjust that, right? And then you move to elevation and altitude, and it's like that on steroids, right? And you're, and you, and and so, as a practitioner, you can't have all the answers from a model to answer the specifics of the situation you're presented with. But what you can do is enter with a subgroup lens, enter with first principles of physiology and biomechanics. When we're really talking about three things there really of you know maximal sprint speed maximal aerobic speed critical speed and then you know maybe layer in deceleration and acceleration you can have really powerful discussions as a scientist in that mix of where decisions are being made from that skill set that doesn't need technology doesn't need a research project it just needs you understanding the context of the sport and having those first principles and leaning into that. And then you can gain from that some really impactful questions that you can take to your team. And that's how you can really 
you know, blend this stuff into improving the performance of, of people. Because if you're not in those conversations, if you're not in those decisions, um, you know, this stuff doesn't impact what's going on. And so that's, that's a whole piece of meeting people where they are, where the coaches are, at the line that they're making their decisions, and then meeting the athletes where they are. I've not met a speed-based athlete who loves going for a long run. <laughs> and I know there will be people listening to this going, yeah, I have an athlete who's like that in my squad, and that's not working for us or him. But one of the major things like that Phil talked about uh, with England cricket was, you know, the empowering nature that gives the athletes when you go out and you say, okay, you're going to do this because this suits your profile, right? And you over here, you're going to do something different because this is about you. Now, they can't do that all the time because of the technical, tactical demands. But once or twice a week where you have those conditioning windows, you can really create great levels of buy-in by really meeting people where they are and moving them in that, that space. So, I feel like I've absolutely destroyed your time this, this morning because I've kept you for not only an hour and 20 minutes while we've been recording, but probably 15 minutes beforehand when we were, we were talking off air. So what I'm going to do if, if now, if that's okay, is just to ask you, if anyone wants to know more about this, are there any resources that you would point people towards? Where can people get in touch with you and potentially look at, look at your work in this area as well? Yeah, sure. So um, people can find me on Twitter at Gareth underscore Sanford. DMs are open. So yeah, we can chat through there. And then on ResearchGate, uh, just again, Gareth Sanford has all of my papers on this topic. There's two that I would point out. One is a recent review with uh, Paul Larson and Martin Boucher on this topic of the anaerobic speed reserve, which goes through the scientific basis, a number of the practical applications we've talked about, and some others. And then um, there's another paper from Elite Middle Distance Runners, which is from this world tour, where we went and took this question of, you know, coaches are seeing diversity of profiles. We went and tested that with the anaerobic speed reserve, and then we presented out that diversity of profiles in that paper. So that's that's probably the best place. And there's a there's a cool podcast with with I think it's yourself, uh, Jason and Phil. That yeah, right? that's right. Yep. Yep. So yep. That's, we've we've talked about that case study a couple of times. That's Phil Scott at uh, yep. England Cricket. Yeah, people can get hold that. Out. Yep, can absolutely post that out. Is there anything similar to that with case studies around this area or not? Is that the, the kind of the best one for people to, to navigate towards? Yeah, that's, towards? that's the best one. Okay. Um, you know, it's that, that space of, uh, you know, I think now it's like 28 publications or something on this area. So it's 4X since <laughs> I started looking at it, but it, yeah. it's very new, Yeah. you know, and so these collaboration opportunities and... Um, you know, bouncing off each other, like, well, how are you tackling this? What are you finding is actually where the value's going to be. And I know sometimes there can be a, uh, a hesitant sometimes on sharing, but the reality is the diversity is so great. It really is about who you've got in front of you. And so the learnings and the lessons uh, are really impactful. So, And the last final question, I promise you that. Is there anything out? Is there any cool case studies that are happening out there that you could potentially just 
gives an in, not an insight into, but just let us know that that's happened. Like a, like a Phil at England cricket, like he's obviously been open enough and been allowed to share his experiences. Is there anything cool that people are doing, maybe like like the FA that people could kind of look out for? Should it should it come to fruition? Actually, get into the um, into the public domain without getting yourself into bother. Yeah, I'm not on on the research publication side of things. I'm not really sure okay. um, that some of the organisations doing it are doing it from a research okay. side of things. Um, I know the the again. I think the FA podcast is a great yeah, yeah. example of how both you know within a squad, but then across an organisation, they've they've kind of rolled out and applied it and. There's probably a, a few middle distance running podcasts. So, um, yeah, I dig out one with a coach, uh, Justin Rinaldi. He's an 800 meter coach in, in Australia who was one of the first coaches involved in uh, my my world trip. But they're dealing with this this challenge every day, right? Like middle distance coaches are living in this space of um, complexity. So. Yeah, I can find some links and post some of those. Amazing. Gareth, I'm going to finally let you go and let you crack on with your day. I've absolutely drained the life out of you over the last nearly hour and a half, but I really do appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining us and I appreciate your insights, your experience, and obviously your your knowledge in this area. So massive appreciation for your time. Thanks, mate. Thanks for the chat, Rob. Cheers, mate. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 368 of the Pacey Performance Podcast, which is part two with Gareth Sanford, all about discussing the anaerobic speed reserve. So big thanks to Gareth for giving up his time. Also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Fusion Sport, Omega Wave and Output Sports for sponsoring this episode today. Got some really cool guests over the ne- coming up over the next couple of weeks discussing ACL and hamstring rehabilitation, change direction training, strength and conditioning in high schools and some features from the new book High Performance Training for Sports. So thanks again for tuning in and I will chat to you next week.